Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers has warned Australia could fail to meet its emissions targets without drastic change. Australia has committed to reaching net zero by 2050. It's also promised to power the electricity grid with 82% renewables by 2030. And the Treasurer says part of the solution is to refine Australia's metals onshore using renewable energy before shipping it overseas. That's from an Australian Broadcasting Commission radio report about last week's Economic and Social Outlook Conference held in Melbourne. Yes, welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversation. It's so great to have you along. And I am your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. And I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Let's now hear the rest of that Australian Broadcasting Commission radio report about last week's Economic and Social Outlook Conference. Angus Randall reports. Australia has seven years to meet its next renewables target. Treasurer Jim Chalmers warns right now we're not on track. Without more decisive action across all levels of government, working with investors and industry and communities, the energy transition could fall short of what the country needs. In a speech at the annual Economic and Social Outlook Conference in Melbourne, the Treasurer says he's developing a plan to reach 82% renewable energy by 2030 and net zero by 2050. He says private industry needs to step up. We need $225 billion in additional investment by 2050 across energy and industry by some estimates. But we also know this. Uh, Just pumping capital into the transformation won't be enough if we don't address skill shortages in the energy sector, if technologies remain untested at a commercial scale, if we don't properly plan for infrastructure and ensure that our supply chains are robust and reliable. Australia is one of the largest mining countries in the world. That's not going to change anytime soon. But the government says there's a shift in demand towards so-called green metals. Jim Chalmers says rather than just dig it up, Australia can process its minerals onshore and in an environmentally friendly way. Refining and processing critical minerals will allow us to move up and along global supply chains to capture more of the value added. We'll transform our other industrial processes by using low-cost renewable energy to produce renewable hydrogen and its derivatives like ammonia at some of the most competitive prices in the world. Green metal comes out of the ground in the same way as any other mineral. It's the way it's processed that proponents say makes it more environmentally friendly and can make a huge difference on Australia's emissions targets. Traditionally, Australia has sent minerals offshore before being processed. Tim Buckley is the director of independent think tank Climate Energy Finance. He says that has to change. We've really got to get away from the the fossil fuel mentality of the past, which is all about dig it up and ship it out, which is very, very profitable for the companies involved, but there's no national interest. You can't say doing zero value add is in Australia's national interest. And this is the opportunity to permanently rebuild manufacturing and refining capacity onshore. The government argues Australia can use its enormous natural wind and solar energy resources to power green refineries and then ship the green refined product overseas. Tim Buckley is largely supportive of the plan. His problem is speed. 
my point is I just want him to move four times faster and five times as much ambition. I want him to talk about the coming decade, not 2050, because if we're waiting till 2050, Korea will already have totally built out their supply chains. America will build out their supply chains and we will miss out. And that'll be a permanent miss out. We won't be able to catch up. Professor Michael Goodsight is the director of the University of Adelaide's Institute for Sustainability, Energy and Resources and pro-vice-chancellor of Energy Futures. He's currently looking into green copper. Until recently, the market hasn't necessarily demanded this type of green commodity in practice that we're seeing demand for now. Copper was copper. And um, now people, if they're designing a sustainable building that uses copper or a windmill, which a standard onshore um, windmill might use about eight tons of copper, people are are expecting that you're doing that um, with appropriate ESG principles in place. We can become the world's largest or first ranked producer in green copper. And I think the market will pay a premium for that. Acting leader of the opposition, Susan Lee, doubts the plan will encourage businesses to invest. While we support transitions to renewables, and we always have, I'm so disappointed that this government has not found a way over 18 months into their first term to actually realise any energy policy at all. Treasurer Jim Chalmers is forging ahead. He's also tasked the Productivity Commission with focusing on the net zero transformation. Angus Randall there. Because of my media affiliations, I was fortunate to be a guest at the recent Economic and Social Outlook Conference in Melbourne. I went as a representative of Climate Conversations, this podcast, and I also write a column for my local newspaper, The Shepherd and News. In a sense, I probably shouldn't have been there, because... I felt like something of a, and to use a rather weary cliche, a square peg in a round hole. I was there to explore the climate connection with all what was being talked about. The conference was staged in cooperation between the Australian newspaper, which I believe is a climate-denying institution. It's very suspicious of the whole climate movement. And beyond that, they worked with the University of Melbourne. That, I felt, was something of a strange marriage, because... While the Australian newspaper is something of a climate-denying organisation, the University of Melbourne most certainly is not, and I couldn't figure out why the two had thrown their lot together. I guess, however, in times past, the union would have made sense. They could have both complemented each other and made for a great program. But the arrival of the climate crisis and the damage caused by the extractive industries and a change to consumerism, the danger of consumerism, seemed to make the marriage of these two organisations somewhat odd. I went along in the hope that I could get some broad idea about what these sort of people were saying about the climate crisis. Well, in fact, beyond a few incidental asides here and there, they said nothing. The Federal Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, said a few things, but nothing that could appease someone concerned about the climate crisis, as he stayed almost entirely within the existing paradigm of growth. He didn't want to offend those who saw growth as a solution to everything, that everything will be okay, that we're going to make 2050, it'll be fine, don't worry. The PM was there, but he never really talked about the climate crisis at all. He talked about a whole bunch of other things, but never the climate crisis. Anthony Albanese had obviously tailored his address to the audience. It said nothing about the drastic action, the drastic economic action that's going to be required if Australia is to seriously address the climate crisis. 
The only person to seriously mention the climate crisis was a lead partner from Deloitte Access Economics, Dr. Pradeep Philip. Dr. Philip was one of three on the panel pulled together to discuss full employment and low inflation. Can we pull it off? Keen not to see the climate conversation disappear without making any noise at all, without throwing any sort of a shadow, asked a question on behalf of climate conversation. And then it was at lunchtime that a fellow came and sat with me, a doctor, Jan Kabatek. Dr. Kabatek is acutely aware of how much energy computer programs consume. He has ideas about how to reduce the amount of energy that computer programs need. So I'll be interviewing him soon, hopefully. And so watch out for that upcoming episode. Let's listen now to another story from the Australian Broadcasting Commission. Late last year, the traditional owner of the Tiwi Islands drew a line in the sand over fossil fuel company Santos and their Barossa offshore gas project. Today, that line was reinforced by a federal court judge. This afternoon, an interim junction was ordered on the project's expansion, just hours before the company was due to begin constructing an underwater pipeline north of Darwin. Alina Lakin is the special counsel for the Environmental Defender's Office and joins me now. Alina, there has been a number of sort of points, you know, in, in this sort of legal battle against Santos. For those who aren't familiar with this fight, where did it all begin? Well, it all began um, quite some time ago, middle of last year, really, when Tiwi Islanders brought a case then against the drilling approval that Santos had. Uh, That case ran through the federal court and to appeal in December last year. And our client, Dennis Tipper-Clipper, was successful in having Santos's drilling plan set aside. So the drilling rig has been sitting off the coast of the Tiwi Islands for you know, the better part of a year now um, doing nothing. But this case that that is the, that has been decided today is about a different part of the project. It's about the pipeline and was brought by our client Simon Munkara, who's a traditional owner of the Tiwi Islands. Yeah, tell me more about Simon Munkara and how he came to uh, stridently oppose this project. Well, Simon, as I said, is a traditional owner and he's a community leader of the Jikalaru clan of the Tiwi Islands. And that's the clan that is the closest to where this pipeline is proposed to be installed. So about seven kilometres off a very, very important sacred area for Jikalaru people, Cape Fourcroy. Um, and, and Simon and other elders from across three clans of the Tiwi Islands have been urging Santos and the offshore regulator for a year now to take seriously their concerns about the risks to their tangible and intangible cultural heritage if this pipeline proceeds in the proposed location. How, how is your client feeling after today's decision? Does it feel like a, a delay or, or something more finite? Oh, well, he and the entire community are just elated, relieved and really proud that they've stood up for what what is really most important to them, which is their cultural heritage. And, um, you know, we we had FaceTimes and phone calls, uh, you know, for hours after we received the judgment with people in the community and there were tears, there was jubilation. And even though this is only a temporary protection, uh, people really feel that they are doing this for the future generations, for their children and their children's children, so that their cultural heritage is protected. So it was a hugely momentous decision uh, in their eyes, even though it is only a temporary protection. 
Apart from the cultural significance that the Tiwi traditional owners have cited in this case, what about the uh, environmental impact or risks? What was argued there? Well, well, this case really is about the heritage impacts and the intangible impacts, which include song lines, dreamtime stories, um, ancient burial grounds, ancestral spirits, and the impacts on all of those things. Uh, and the other aspect is tangible heritage. And, and there's a report that was actually commissioned by Santos that, that shows that there are 163 sites of high and medium archaeological potential, so places where there might still be art artefacts or, um, you know, important relics from the past that are preserved and they are all in the root of or very close to where this pipeline is proposed to be laid. The case isn't the only attempt to halt this project. Last week you also applied to Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek to declare emergency protection for that area. How did you go with that application? Yeah, well, that, that's still under consideration and, and you know, our clients and, and Tiwi elders want to basically do anything that they possibly can to ensure that their cultural heritage is not destroyed by the insulation of this pipeline. So they are understandably taking every step and every option open to them, which includes applying urgently to Minister Plibersek for that protection. We don't know what the outcome of, of that application will be, but our clients are really hopeful that one way or the other, they'll be able to ensure that their cultural heritage is protected. Alina Lakin is from the Environmental Defenders Office. We're talking about today's injunction on Santos's Barossa pipeline work just hours before work was due to commence here on RN Drive. So the ongoing legal battle, where does that sit? I mean, today's decision is one thing, but this is a big project with many features, if you like, Clearly, there's been two cases uh, in attempt to block or delay it. What's the future in terms of these applications? Well, um, we are back before the court on the 13th of November. And at that stage, the court will decide what is to happen between that date and the full trial of this case, which will take some time. Um, so our clients are, of course, hopeful that this interim protection will be extended at that time. And that's what they'll be arguing for. And really fundamentally, this case is about the question of whether, having identified new risks to cultural heritage, Santos should be able to simply proceed with its plans unchanged or whether it should revise those plans and consult with Tiwi people and then resubmit them to the regulator. That's really fundamentally at the heart of this case. It's it's not a huge ask and that's, that's what our clients are asking for. I suppose you're hopeful that this case will carry through the success of last year's landmark federal court case against the drilling permit for the Barossa offshore gas project itself. Well, yes. I, I mean, this case definitely builds on that decision and also the recent decision in Western Australia in the in the matter of Cooper, which also dealt with cultural heritage concerns off the WA coast. And, and all of those cases really reinforce that spiritual and cultural concerns of First Nations people are very serious matters that fossil fuel companies building multi-billion dollar projects must engage with and, and must do that in a robust and proper way okay. so that those concerns can be properly dealt with. Special Counsel for the Environmental Defenders Office, Alina Lakin, appreciate your time. Thank you very much. 
Let's shift now to a story from the Washington Post, and it's written by William Brandigan. As the headline for the story is, Salam al-Haq, climate change revolutionary from Bangladesh, dies at 71. And the story begins. Salam al-Haq, a Bangladeshi-British scientist who gained renown as a climate revolutionary for his efforts to make high-polluting countries help the world's poorest, most vulnerable states deal with the devastating impacts of climate change, died October 28 in the Bangladeshi capital, Dhaka. He was 71. His death was confirmed by the International Centre for Climate Change and Development, a Bangladeshi-based research organisation that he headed. The cause was a heart attack he suffered at his home. Bangladeshi news media reported, citing his family. Amid calls for reduction of the greenhouse gas emissions that have been warming the planet and intensifying extreme weather events such as droughts, cyclones and floods, Dr Huck focused on ways to adapt to climate change and mitigate its effects. Join me now as we listen to another piece from the Australian Broadcasting Commission. Environmental damage inflicted by the climate crisis is rather obvious. You've got bleaching of coral reefs, towns becoming inhabitable because of flooding or fires, worsening storms. But the impacts on you and your family's personal safety and health are sometimes not so visible. An Australian Institute for Health and Welfare report has been looking into the number of hospitalisations and deaths directly related to extreme heat, bushfire, rain and storms, and extreme cold in Australia over the last decade. It paints a pretty sobering picture, especially as the country heads into an El Nino summer this year. Dr Heather Swanston is the head of the Institute's Injuries and Systems Surveillance Unit. Heather, tell me about this report. What did it find? Well, extreme weather-related hospitalisations spiked at over 1,000 cases every three years. So this was a pattern that uh, really caught our interest the spikes were becoming progressively higher as well every three years. So, for example, in 2013-14, we saw 1,027 injury hospitalisations, and then in 2016-17, this went up to 1,033. And then three years later, in 2019-20, it spiked again at 1,108. And in each of these three years, extreme heat had the biggest impact on hospitalisations and deaths. So when you're describing these spikes, did the hospitalisations then go back down and then return over the, the the summer months? They went back down in the years intervening, but spiked at a higher point the next, you know, at the, in the following three, three years. Yeah, okay. So on, that, on that third year, there was another spike and it was higher again than the year before, than the three years earlier. So, I mean, a thousand cases every three years, this is cause for concern. We saw during the European heatwave, particularly in Italy, just how much, and Greece, just how much of an effect heat can have on a population. What makes heatwaves so deadly? Well, with the exception of Tasmania, that's right, exposure to excessive natural heat was the leading cause of injury hospitalisations across all states and territories. And in Western Australia, for example, from 2019 to 2022, there were 267 hospital admissions just related to extreme heat. That's not including anything else. That's a lot. Wow. Okay. So what about cold and rain and flooding, storm-related events? Does the report go into that much detail? We also looked at bushfires, actually. We looked at all those things, and the numbers of injuries related to bushfires was higher in El Nino years. 
and that's a really important finding. On average, bushfire injuries occur 1.6 times as often in these El Nino years. What's the threshold for a hospitalisation in this case? Is it just turning up to ER or staying overnight? Oh, that's a question for for um, clinical folks. That's definitely a question right. for clinicians. Okay. But these, um, but if someone is going to be hospitalised, and of course we looked at deaths as well, which is um, you know both of these are very serious. Obviously, deaths incredibly serious, and that um, sticks to the severity of the injury. You mentioned uh, Tasmania being the exception when it comes to excessive natural heat. What about Queensland? What about the Northern Territory? What about the West? Uh, tell me about the hospitalisations due to heat there. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Queensland um, was in the lead, unfortunately. They had 717 people admitted related to extreme heat just in the period from 20, uh, 2019 to 2022. And uh, Victoria was next. And Tasmania was a little bit different. Um, and you mentioned to extreme cold earlier and uh, the leading cause of injury hospitalisations in Tasmania was very different to the mainland states and territories. So their leading cause was exposure to extreme cold in terms of weather-related injuries. It sounds like the perception of heat and its risks is sort of not fully sunk in with the population. You know, in Europe, again, you had heat waves being given rather terrifying names like Chimera and, you know, Greek gods and things like this. Mm. What can we do in terms of making it patently clear to people about the risks? I mean, this report suggests a weather-related injury surveillance system. What's that? That's right. Uh, we are looking at ways of identifying and counting injuries that are related and, and that are clearly related to uh, extreme weather events. So if anything, this report is an undercount. It's a very conservative estimate. Uh, you know, it's a starting point for counting extreme weather-related injuries. And um, Andy, back on your point in terms of people who are at risk and the number one thing I think we need to start with is to be careful and mindful of those who are extra vulnerable. So these are people, for example, um, older people are at greater risk for weather-related injury, particularly heat, uh, children, people with disabilities, and particularly people with pre-existing or chronic health conditions, cardiovascular issues, respiratory issues. And there's a lot of research coming out now about kidney issues related to dehydration, for example. Um, we're also seeing, in terms of uh, the risk factors, outdoor workers, of course, are quite exposed, literally, and they are in a high-risk group for uh, extreme weather-related injury. And there's a phenomenon coming out. We call it thermal inequity, and this is really important. Thermal inequity. I feel like we're going to hear this term a fair bit as the I, yes, summer goes absolutely. on. What does That's it mean? right. So this is all about people who are experiencing socioeconomic disadvantage. So people in these groups might have reduced capacity to avoid uh, or reduce the health impacts of extreme weather conditions. Yeah, well, as this El Nino uh, winds on, I feel like these are the sorts of warnings that we can't say weren't there and uh, an injury surveillance system could help with that. Dr Heather Swanston is the head of the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare's Injuries and Systems Surveillance Unit. Good afternoon to you. 
Join me now as we listen to 90 Seconds from Yale Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Leisowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Apple season is winding down in New York's Finger Lakes region, and would-be pickers may have found less fruit than usual this year. A warm spell in the early spring lured fruit trees out of their winter dormancy. Then, on May 18th, temperatures plunged into the mid-20s, killing blossoms and baby fruit. We lost 100% of our crop for all intents and purposes. That's Autumn Stoshek. She and her husband own Eve Cidery and grow more than 50 varieties of apples. She says this year's late frost was extreme. But as the climate warms, fruit trees often blossom earlier than they used to. And then even like the normal level of frost and freeze is like too much because they're too far developed and they don't come back. You don't get another chance till the next year. Stoshek had to buy other growers' apples to make cider this year. And she knows at least one grower who was forced to close their business. It takes decades and decades to like build these farms and build these farm communities and farm systems. And it can go away in a year, you know, if you just can't make it work financially because you've lost your entire crop. So the warming climate is hard on apples and the people whose livelihoods depend on them. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. Now to another story from the New York Times, and it's written by Brad Plummer. It has the headline, Energy Department Pours Billions Into Power Grids, but warns it's not enough. The story begins. The Energy Department on Monday announced $1.3 billion to help build three large power lines across six states part of a new gush of money from Washington to upgrade America's electric grids so they can handle more wind and solar power and better tolerate extreme weather. But officials warn that money won't be enough. In a major report published the same day, the Energy Department said that the nation's vast network of transmission lines may need to expand by two-thirds or more by 2035 to meet President Biden's goals to power the country with clean energy. That would help slash the carbon dioxide emitted by gas and coal-fired electric plants, pollution that is heating the planet, but would require hundreds of billions of dollars in investment and a frenzied pace of construction. We need to seriously build out energy transmission, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm said. Climate inaction is a violation of human rights. That's according to Pacifica activists. You can hear this short piece now from SBS News. For climate activist Cynthia Honuhi, looking out at the ocean is a reminder of her island home. But rising sea levels and an increase in severe weather events have made the effects of a changing climate deeply personal. I grew up in the Solomon Islands, so you go to some places, people have already have had to relocate. Cynthia's advocacy was instrumental in pushing a UN resolution to the International Court of Justice, which could hold countries accountable for their climate records. Carbon emissions produced by the Pacific Islands amount to less than 0.03% of the world's total. We want to have children in the future as well. We want to bring them into a sustainable future, you know, a future that, you know, we have our lands that they can practice their culture, they have the same childhood that we have. You know, I worry that I have to go to an extent of, OK, this is a picture, this is where I come from. Dr Wesley Morgan is with the Climate Council. The ICJ campaign puts Australia on notice that Australia will be needing to do more to 
cut emissions this decade and move faster away from fossil fuels. Australia has set targets to reduce domestic emissions by 43% on 2005 levels by 2030 and achieve net zero by 2050. But ahead of the Pacific Islands Forum, climate activists like Joseph Sikulu, the director of 350 Pacific, say it's not enough. We always say that Australia is a big brother nation in the Pacific and Australia really needs to start acting like that. And one of the difficult things about Australia's presence, especially within something like the Pacific Island Forum, is that it comes in with a lot of leverage and a lot of power. They should do more to try and push for the betterment of our region and the betterment of our people. In a statement to SBS, Pat Conroy, the Australian Minister for the Pacific, said the Albanese government is taking strong action on climate change and stands with the Pacific in recognising the urgency of addressing the climate crisis. The government has established a new Pacific Climate Infrastructure Financing Partnership, which is investing in more climate-resilient infrastructure, including small-scale and off-grid renewable energy projects across the Pacific, while also increasing climate finance for developing countries from 2 to $3 billion. Meeting with the forum's Secretary-General last week, more than 60 Pacific youth activists gathered in Fiji to present their climate demands. In the Pacific, they say we're like the canary in the coal mine because we've seen it for a long time. I worry about our communities a lot, but I never worry about the spirit that is within us to be able to try and build the future that we want. A spirit that is echoed by the Pacifica community in Australia. This is Uniting Moderator Reverend Mata Havahiliao. I'm a daughter from the Pacific. Um, I'm aware of direct family uh, and relatives and islands that have been directly impacted. It's not a joke. It is a crisis. Jennifer Scherer, SBS World News. Yes, here we are at the end of another episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along, and I do hope you've learned something. Now, I urge you to follow this podcast, because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. Also, I'd love you to share this episode, because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. So please share this with your friends. Also, I'd love to hear from you what you think about this podcast. Now, don't hold back. Tell me what you think, good or bad, and you can email me at r.mclean, the number seven, at icloud.com. Don't hold back, good or bad, let me know. Now, I've still got a screen full of stories and I can't address them all, but I'll put as many as I can in the show notes, so please go there and you'll find links to many, many stories. Now, until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Now stay safe and take care.